ברוכים הבאים בשם השם, ברכנוכם מבייס השם. Welcome to our weekly Wednesday night shir. We always dedicate the shir, the schus, refuah shalema fariza shlamas bracha basrachal hindas, shishav refuah shalema treva, shishav long and happy years life that she, she can fulfill to fruition nachas from her children happiness and joy with her husband and family tonight we are dedicating the shir Lil Nishmas Aravachos Atomim of Yaakov and Shabtai Elbrig. Yaakov and Shabtai is a true old time Tomim, an old time Chosid. Called a Fatsaitish Shachosid. Tonight it being his first yard site, Yidzayim Teves, Skusa Yogan Olenu. Skusa Yogan Olenu, Yaakov. The word first didn't exist in his dictionary, actually. First is always everybody else. He didn't know the concept of first. When the yeshiva was suffering financially, which it always is, unfortunately, as all Torah maestas are, because they're the last guys that anyone wants to find money for. No, just that's the way it goes. When the yeshiva was suffering very fa- very badly, there was a group of wealthy people that got together to see how can they help the yeshiva. How can they help? What can they do to help the yeshiva? Rabbi Yaakov Yaakov and Shabtai is Yotzai, is tonight, his first Yotzai. Yaakov was at this meeting. And they started, everybody had, you know how it works when you get a group of people together, and everybody has an idea, and everybody's here, they figure they're here only for ideas. They weren't looking around the table, seeing that everybody here is financially stable, and they're supposed to be, they're being asked to put together money. That didn't occur to them. They're all here. So each one's going to have an idea how the yeshiva and where the yeshiva can cut, where the yeshiva can add, subtract, as long as it doesn't have to come out of their pocket. Rabbi Yaakov was not fond of what was going on. He was not one to sit and waste time. He didn't mince his words, as we say. And he said, You know what, Rabbi Yisai? Yeshiva does not need ideas. Yeshiva needs money. Ania Cotton, I'm the first one, I'm putting down $30,000. Who's matching me? 
And he looked around the table, and everybody cowered into a corner. <laughs> and there was many people around that table, $30,000 would never even be a bleep on their radar. I can't tell you the results of his appeal. I don't know it. I don't know what everybody else said. Rabbi Yaakov wrote out a check on the spot for $30,000. And as soon as he left the meeting, ran out to a friend of his and borrowed the money. He didn't have liquid $30,000. He borrowed the money, and in a short time thereafter, paid it back because he borrowed it for tzedakah. He borrowed it for something that was the right cause. This is a typical act of Rabbi Yaakov. Tonight, I daven Meir in 770, and his son, Ruvain, davened for the Yom, it was the outside, he's a Chiyav. So I waited after Meir, and I went over to Ruvain, and I said, Ruvain, I'm asking you for a check, I'm asking you for a pledge, in honor of your father's outside, we're dedicating the shir tonight in his name. If you want to drink the Sprite, this Coke, there's a cup. Give me a story. So he starts telling me how his father was the epitome of Abbas Yisrael, how he loved the fellow I said, my opinion and your opinion don't have to be mixed. I know your father. I knew your father very, very well. Um, we got grew to love his father very much. His father used to sit right behind me during Davani and Shabbos. Yom Shabbos. If ever any of my boys, which boys tend to do, acted up a little bit, or talking rowdily, or talking during something they shouldn't be talking, he'd poke his finger into my back. He would never tell the boys. Not his business to tell the boys. Not his position. Although if he told the boys, the boys would listen to him they respected and revered him. But he used to poke me in the back and then make with his head so he shouldn't even say any words because he wasn't going to talk. But that it shouldn't come that if the kids, the boys shouldn't see it in case they'll get insulted or upset. And he would wink Okay, we're having a problem, Houston. I don't know why the speaker went back on. Okay. There we go. And he um, just wanted to make sure that the boys understood and the boys behaved. He uh, used to have very profound thoughts on the Parsha. You could see this man studied the Parsha. Because he used to ask me questions on Shabbos. And it was never in a form of stunt the rabbi. 
It was he wanted to discuss it. He wanted to delve into it. And, and, and he really, he had a tremendous insight of what was going on. So Ruben told me a story. In the olden days in Russia, the olden days in Russia, travel, air travel, wasn't what it is today. Even today, I mean, it's not exactly, not exactly uh, you know, airport hubs that uh, you'd love to be flying out of. But he, um, what would happen is you come to the airport and you'd usually be facing a, a long line and you'd have to give in potluck to see if you can get on the next plane to wherever you were going. And sometimes you ended up going somewhere else anyway. More often than not, probably. Yaakov had a patent. He had a way he understood something that was a little different in the world. How to treat world. He says, money makes the world go round. And the Byakov used to take his passport, used to put uh, 100 ruble, whatever it was, into the passport. And he'd go over to one of the porters and tell them, i got to get to this and this place. And he used to come on a Friday. And he used to have to fly somewhere on a Friday. The line was quite long, and there was a good chance you'd spend Shabbos in the airport if you didn't get on a, fl- on a plane early enough. And unless you slept overnight in the airport, I guess you didn't get onto the plane. So what Yaakov would do, so he put this money in, in his passport, and he gave it to a porter, and the porter would go over and get him a ticket, and he'd have a, a flight. He was standing once in the airport on a Friday and Rabbi Yaakov at the time didn't have a beard. He used to shave. And he uh, looked like a tough fella. He was a very, very soft-spoken edler fellow. But he looked like he had this this air out of him. People were in awe of him. You just didn't know... uh, how, how special he really was. Where you go on my phone? And so Rabbi Yaakov saw on the line, also waiting for buying a plane ticket, was a Lubavitcher Chassid. That he knew. So he walked over to the Chassid, who needed to get on a plane, and he says, in Russian, Damni, Damni Give me your passport. You give me your passport. The vile of the guy was petrified. <laughs> Here's this guy without a beard. Maybe he, he's KGB or he's who knows what. He wants my passport. And he, he was petrified. Yeah. So Yaakov saw 
this guy was scared, and he told him, I'm a chassid, I'm a Lubavitch chassid like you are. Give me your passport, I'll get you a ticket. Where are you going? So the chassid told him where he was going, and he gave him his passport. Yaakov put in whatever I needed to put in, a hundred rubles, whatever it was. And he got the porter to go get this guy a ticket as well. Mm-hmm. Until this dying day, this chassid actually moved to Hesel. Should live and be well. Whenever he came to America, he would come to look out for Rav Yaakov to thank him still for that flight on that Friday that he didn't end up spending Shabbos in the airport because of the schus of Yaakov. So the schus of Aleinu, the last shayla of Yaakov asked me, he was having a discussion with his son Ruvain. We have a custom that for the Pasha of Krishna, when we say Krishna, we take all our tzitzis together. And we hold the tzitzis between our pinky and our ring finger, and we bring it around through our index finger. And that's how we hold it until we say the Pasha of tzitzis, and then we take it in both hands, and we kiss the tzitzis. So, Rabbi Yaakov wanted to know because in Chabad custom it says by the words when you bring together that that's when we should have all four tzitzes in our hand. So they were discussing when do we have to start putting together the tzitzes. The right front, the left front, back one. When do we start doing it? Which part of Avaselim? And it was a Tzmimistike dispute. Such a... It wasn't a, a, a foolish or frivolous thing. When I thought about it, and I think about it till today, Yaakov wanted to know, and Yaakov was of opinion, that as soon as it's possible, we need to start bringing together Merba Kanfesaretz. As soon as possible, as soon as a Jew has the capacity to do so, a Jew needs to bring together Mayar Bakamfes Oretz. A Jew needs to reach out and to bring in whoever he can under the fold which we're going to tie in Mirchem to this week's parsha. Actually, let's not procrastinate, let's go to that straight. Pari, King Pharaoh. King Pharaoh says, Chapter 1, verse 22. The beginning of the Parsha. Every boy that is born should be thrown into the river, the river of Nilus. And every girl should be let to live. Pari had an issue. He found out that the Savior of the Jews is going to be born. The Savior of the Jews is going to be born, and it's going to be a boy, and he's going to take the Jews out. However, because of water, he'll be smitten. 
The child will suffer because of water. So Pari figured that this meant that he will he could drown him in the river. He'll drown eventually. So why wait until the boy is older and he drowns? Let him drown them now. Pari's stargazers only saw fifty percent. They only got they didn't get the full picture. They didn't realize this refers to later when it made Mariva, etc. We'll discuss one day. Pari therefore decrees that all male children born should be thrown into the river. And this thereby the water will be his end, will be his demise, Rahman al Islam. So wonderful. So make an announcement. If you close that door, we have a little more heat here. That kalaben Any boy born, throw him in the river and stop. Why does Pari continue in the same form of his decree where he's killing Jewish children, the Jewish boy, because he doesn't want the Savior to come about. Why does he need to continue anything about the girls? Why is he saying anything about the girls at all? So we see therefore, every daughter, every girl should live, is not necessarily a compliment, not necessarily a joyous thing for the Jews, but rather part of the decree. Just like just like throwing the boys, the male child in the river is a decree, the girl child staying alive is also a decree. And it's taken just that. It is it is exactly that. Pare decrees on his nation. To make sure that girls live. Although the boys he wanted physically dead by throwing them in the river and drowning them, the girls he wanted spiritually dead. Techayun, you should give them life, you should make them live, you should give them the lifestyle of the Egyptian culture, you should should inculcate them with all our beautiful customs and ways of life. That's how they should techayun, they should live. So in essence, the decree on the girls was stronger than the decree on the boys. Because here he was attacking not the physical essence, but the spiritual. And this we also see how you throw him into the river. Not only does it physically translate throwing him into the river, the boy should be destroyed through the river, which we said before is the Nilus. The Nilus was the Avedizara, the idol worship of Egypt. Pare declared himself a godly figure because of the Nilus. The Nilus, Yaakov Avinu blessed him 
And each time he came to the Nilus, the water rose up to him. Pare himself, whatever the story might have been, that was the only time he went to the bathroom, etc., etc. What is going on there? Well, why do you get blessed for that? Because he lost it. Yaakov blessed him. So Yaakov blessed him, and this is this was his story. This is his life. He told it to you, huh? So Pare wanted that the Jewish boys should be drinking the waters. Educate them also in Egyptian lifestyle with the Ye'er, which is represent, represents the idol worship of Egypt. A way of approaching a Torah and Mitzvahs, a format, is a person can begin to study or to daven. A person can on the surface connect with God through a mitzvah or through a teira. And then, in Yiddish the expression is, He throws himself into it. Now when you throw yourself into a situation, it goes the same way actually in the physical world when it comes to work. Person depends how a person works. You have the person that shows up to work and says and looks at the the clock. They say that the most, um, the safest thing in any office is the clock on the wall. Because everybody's looking at it all day long. Change the clock. Where did he come from? They just stare at the clock all day. So you have the worker that comes in to clock in and to clock out at the end of the day and whatever that happens during the course of the day, whatever he can accomplish, he accomplishes for you. And I get weiter. Then you have the expression, he rolls up his sleeve and gets into his work. He throws himself into his work. Sometimes a person gets a little too involved in their work and forgets anything else that's going on around them, which is also not too great. But when it comes to Teda, it comes to Aveda, service of Hashem, person needs to throw himself into it. Pare being the ultimate clipper, the ultimate opposite of Kedusha, the complete opposite, the other side of the pendulum, when it comes to spirituality, 
Pare wanted just that. Did we not just teach them about our Vidizara? Not just teach them about our customs and about our behavior. But Tashlichu. Let them throw them into it. Let them get totally, totally over their heads in it. So they should be totally full and Rabbi Yaakov ben Shabtai was that type of person when he came to a mitzvah. When he came to a mitzvah, he did not cut corners. When he came to a mitzvah, he wanted to do it the 110%. And they say that you can see a person's mitzvahs in his heart, the purity of his heart on his esrik. And Rabbi Yaakov had it every year. When he's diving right behind me. For whenever I can remember, he had a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful essay that he was extremely, extremely proud of always. And this was a typical example of his form of Hidr Mitzvah. And this is what the Torah is telling us here. Hayyayre Tashlichu, the Gzeda we need to be careful from. Before I go into my main problem of the parsha, discuss a few other things in the parsha. Farshim asks a question. Tera tells us that Yosef passes away, all his brothers and the entire generation, and Vayakam Melach and Vayakam Pare, whatever, a new Pharaoh got up that did not remember Yosef, and he started all the decrees that he put upon the Jews. Mepharshim ask. we know Yosef passed away. We heard about it twice in Pashvayichi. Why is Taylor telling us again? And if he wants to refer to that the whole generation died, the generation that we're talking about is Yaakov's sons, Yaakov and his sons. So let's Taylor write, Vayemusu Yaakov, Children of Yaakov, and his that whole generation passed away. Why? You're talking, referring to all the children of Jacob. Huh? No. Those of you who are interested in the in Yerushalmi, Talmud Yerushalmi, which is obviously a different format than Bavli, and you're going to keep score at home. You're looking to Saita. Pedic Aleph, it's divided in Halachas, Halachaches. The Gemara tells us about Shimshon Hagiber. 
Shimshin, the mighty Shimshin. I don't know, my shins are not pronounced properly, so it sounds, so Shimshin is not a good, proper name for me to be using. But the story is the Shimshin Agiva. Shimshin Agiva, it says in one passage, Vayishpeit es Yisrael Arbaim Shana. He ruled over the Jews for 40 years. But then another Pasik says that he ruled Shafat as Israel Esrim Shana. He ruled the Jews 20 years. No, Frekti Rotakasha. 20, 40 is double 20. So he ruled it 20 years, he didn't rule it 40 years. If you're telling me 20 years and another opinion says 21 years, okay, he started earlier in the year and he counted later in the year, whatever you want to say. 22 years, you can count off a little bit. Many different halachas that count in this way. On Edom Zemimim, you could perhaps catch, you don't catch them off by this number, by half a number, whatever. But 20 years difference. Zakti Gemara Melamid comes to teach us. For 20 years after Shimshin passed away, the Plishtim, the Plishtinite Philistines, still feared him. Just like they feared him when he was alive. They had the same fear. After twenty for twenty years after Shimshon died, if you screamed to in the middle of a plishti neighborhood, Shimshon is coming. They ran for their lives. He was dead for ten years, but they still ran for their lives. The fear of Shimshon came into them. So the we could say that just like by Shimshon, where twenty years later. He was still, it was recognizable amongst the Plishtim, the Philistinians. Philistines. No, don't, go, don't even go there. So also by Yasef, it was recognizable that he ruled in Mitzrayim. Even after he died, he was part of the history. He saved the country. The seven poverty years and he was the one that ruled and took care of and brought it all about the seven rich years he made sure that the food was put away properly and for the seven years he made sure that it was distributed properly so he really in in essence was the history book of Egypt which is therefore a pella when you say that a pari got up and didn't remember Yesus it doesn't make sense but the only way it could possibly make sense this is Vayakum El Achadish Shalalas Yasef. As long as anyone of that generation was still alive, he always there was always recollection. So you couldn't be Mechan Yasef. But as soon as Yasef passed an entire generation, then his influence on Egypt no longer held. How was Yochavit born? Then? You said, oh, called Yochavit, you have uh, you have Serach, you have uh, whatever. The dead, meaning the men, the men, the children of Yaakov. All the children. Yeah. Not the grandkids. Not, Not necessarily, obviously, because they didn't have the same influence as he did. Mm-hmm. Shh. Shh. 
Nothing. He's nuts. <laughs> Only after Vayamas Kaladera who? Then the Mesa and forgot the influence of Yosef. So that's why we understand why even though it was mentioned already in Yechi, in Pashas Vayechi, it's mentioned once again here of Ayamas Kaladerahu. The wonderful world of emails remind us of these things. I have a guy I send every day a clip of Advaita in English on the Pasha. Every day of the week. There's some people that get it at the end of the week, Thursdays and Fridays. Some people get it the whole week. And he in turn has a problem because I do it because now till now his reputation was a kibitzer. He was the joke man. He always had the joke in shul. He came to shul, he always had the good, the good joke, the new joke. And now all of a sudden, he finds himself saying over at Vatera. <laughs> it's a little traumatic. <coughs> You're ruining my reputation, he says. So in turn, to do me a favor for favors, when I send him at Vatera, he sends me a joke. Today he sent me a little story. Yeah, he was a surprise. He sent me a very interesting story that took place back in 2011. Why is it funny? Not 2011, excuse me, 2011. Must be up in the mind. 2001. On that day, Americans will never forget September 11th. On September 11th, the story takes place in California, where they already knew the story, they already heard what happened in New York, in the Twin Towers of Khmer Lan. a lot of noise people can't hear since that. And this fellow worked for a company called Budweiser. The beer company. Apparently they don't only sell beer, they have other products also they sell. And he came in to deliver his beer in a convenience store a popular convenience store and the two patrons Middle Eastern descent were laughing and celebrating what happened now in New York on that awful day this guy couldn't he couldn't, he couldn't believe what he was watching he ran out he ran to a phone Pre-cell phone days, obviously. Yeah, it it's not. There were cell phones, really. No, they had some. They had, people had some. They didn't have... And he called his boss. And he called his boss and he told his boss what happened. 
He told his boss that I just walked into this store and these guys are laughing about what happened to, in, in New York. Thousands of people are dying. Billions of dollars of construction, of this demolition. And they are sitting and laughing and rejoicing. The boss said, be quick, be nimble, get in the store, and remove every product of ours off the shelves. And this area was very, very popular with Budweiser. Every product that we have in that store, get it out now. And tell them never to call us again. He did. But his neighbor at home was also a delivery guy for a company called Pepsi. And he immediately called his friend from Pepsi and told him the story. He also knew the store because he delivered there as well. And he heard this story. He went and he called his boss in Pepsi and told him what the story was. His boss told him the same thing. Get in there and get everything off the shelf. And this went from one distributor to the next. Every distributor word got out and this store was excuse me, not only empty but was cut down. Nobody was delivering to them anymore. They must have pulled themselves for another few years on their Middle Eastern products probably. But ultimately, declared bankruptcy and closed down. So, you see, when there's solidarity, you accomplish what you need to accomplish. And we see this same thing here in this week's parasha. It's true story? Yeah. Moshe Rabbeinu has a major problem. Vayira Moshe Vayemar. Moshe was petrified and he said, this is in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Okay, Neida Hadavar. Is it known the fact that what happened to me and the Egyptian the other day? They wanted to kill Moshe for this. And Moshe ran away. Why do we need to know Vayira Moshe? And Vayyemir What is that relevant to the story? The fact was that Moshe found out that people knew about his story. It was not a secret anymore. Moshe mm-hmm. found out they wanted to kill him and he ran away. Why is it relevant to this story of Tata that Moshe was frightened? The fright didn't do anything. He left after. When he heard Pari wants to kill him, he ran away. From the fright itself, nothing happens. 
And we have to explain as follows. This pasuk gives us a tremendous foundation in the concept of bitochen. Faith, belief in God. Bitochen does not mean belief. Bitachon is security. They call it bitachon as the security. It doesn't mean believing. Because the fact of the matter is that Chazde Hashem has no boundaries. The kindness of God has no boundaries to it. So a person, when he gets the kindness of God bestowed upon him, he takes it carte blanche, take it the way it comes. But bitachon is something that a person needs to work on themselves to get, to achieve. When the knife is on a person's throat, the person has to have bitachon that he's going to be saved. When a person is in a financial situation, the person needs to have bitachon that Hashem is going to pull him out of it. The famous story with the doctor. The person came and to the mayor Pramishnani told him to go to this town to see the doctor. He had an ailment to go to this town to see a doctor. And he came to that town and he says, where's the doctor of this town? He said, we don't have a doctor in this town. How's that possible? I was told to go see the doctor here. So we don't have a doctor. He says, what do you do when you get sick? He says, when we get sick, we pray to God. The concept of bitachon. I've said many times, later they might not avatam. That when we say in Birchat Amazon, we say in the grace after meals, that we don't want it to be through loans of people and to gifts of people. It's an inevitability that people get loans and gifts. But no, kiim liyadcha hamleya habsucha. I want, when I get this money from somebody else, I want it to be known to me that this is from the hand of God that it's coming. So the person needs to be worry-free and feel that I believe totally and completely that God will help me. (laughs) Unlike the famous story that we've told a million times, the guy that falls off a cliff and he's holding on to the branch for dear life, looking down at 10,000 feet, drop. And he's looking down at the 10,000 feet and he's screaming up to heaven, God, help me! Save me, please! And he hears a heavenly voice. Do you believe in me? He says, yes, Hashem, yes, God, I believe in you. Leave go of the branch. And he leaves, looks at the 10,000 foot drop. And he's thinking about what's going to splat when he hits down there, when he leaves go of the branch. And he looks up to heaven and he says, anybody else up there that can help me? That's not called complete bitachon. <coughs> so this is what the parsha is trying to tell us. That the fear of Moshe, when he heard from a fellow Jew, Halagani, will you kill me like you killed the Egyptian? 
to hear this in the foundation of a person's bitachon, and the person did not have the bitachon that to have his faith put in God, <coughs> by saying such words, you hear that he didn't believe. Meisha was fearful that the Jews will not be able to leave Egypt. They will not be able to go out of the Golas. Because they don't believe. And this is what we have to learn a lesson for ourselves. When a person hits a wall, no, he hits an obstacle of doing Torah mitzvahs. Let us look at tonight's obstacle. Here in our wonderful Brooklyn, New York, it's like nine degrees outside and a very, very strong wind. So they say the wind chill factor is about 15 to 20 below zero. 16 below zero? Okay. Text while driving. Or <laughs> learning. Um, when the person hits these out tonight for going out and you walk out to go out to a shear tonight, it's pure Messias Nefesh. Oh. A person says to himself tonight, I'm not going to no shear, it's too cold. It makes sense. Person says, "I'm not going to dive Meyer with a minion because it's too cold. It makes sense. Tomorrow morning, when it's going to be even colder, when you got to walk four, three, four blocks to the mikveh or to shul. And you take the car. <laughs> no parking. Even if you take the car, fine. If you go, the main thing is if you go, no matter how. If you walk, if you drive, if you walk, you're crazy. But if you drive, you might make it." Um, but you overcome that obstacle because the person has complete bitachon in Hashem and he knows Hashem will help him that it will be good until he's totally totally at peace with it knowing that everything will go all the problems will go through This is This is how a person has to have Bitochen in Hashem to know that I need to do it and I will succeed doing it because this is the will of God. And this too is the determination that we saw in the story with the Budweiser and the Pepsi and all the other merchants. The determination saw to it that they succeeded in their mission. Now that wasn't where the email stopped today. 
<laughs> Actually, I forwarded that email to somebody because they forwarded me an e- they sent me an email or forwarded me an email. A rabbi in Israel, a rabbi in Israel, tells a story. One fine morning, comes into his shul. Uh, it must have been a Shabbos. The Shabbos came into his shul. A younger man that doesn't usually daven by him. That he never saw before, actually. That had a different look to him than the average sabra. And um, he had three little boys. Beautiful, beautiful little boys. Beautiful blonde Pelach. But the blonde Pelach was only a half, half of it. What was even more intriguing was the blue eyes. The children looked, shall we say in simple English, Aryan. They looked like the perfect Aryans. No. After davening, they walked over. To, he walks over to this guy. He tells him, "Shalom aleichem." Says, "Who are you?" He tells him, "I'm a ger. I'm a convert." Says, really? He says, yes. But I started my studies. I grew up in Germany. I went to university. Then I went to finish my studies in Israel. I got to know many Jews there. And I knew some Jews in Germany, and I saw they were not what was depicted to be during the war. Although he says, my father himself. Machshemay was a Nazi, was an SS trooper. His father served many years in prison for the war crimes, but didn't rot there, they let him out. But I saw Jews were not what he said, what he said and thought they made them to be. And I started to look into Judaism. And I came to Israel to finish studying my studies that I needed to, I don't know what he majored in. And I started to learn and study with rabbis. And I became a ger. I cut every tie from my parents, my family. And we were blessed with these three beautiful little boys. I got a phone call recently, he says, from my biological mother, the Shiksa. And she called and said that her, her husband, his biological father, was about to pay you, about to die. She wants that he should come, come to see him before she dies. I asked my Rav, and the Rav told me that he was biologically my father, although I have no tie to him or anything. But as a, he did bring you into the world, so as a tri- tribute, as a token, whatever, you should go. 
So I came in with my three boys into the hospital room with his old Nazis lying there dying. He saw my children, he turned his head away. He couldn't look at them. Despicable Jews. I asked him, he says, I asked this man, tell me the truth. What good thing did you do in your life? There must have been something good you did to have merited to have such beautiful grandchildren. I never did anything for the Jews. I hate the Jews. I killed the Jews. I destroyed Jews. He says, no, 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 Patri. You have to tell me there's something, Patri, you did. He says, I'll tell you a story. Towards the end of the war, we came to a Catholic orphanage. We knew that many Jewish families hid their children there. So we came to the orphanage and we said to the nuns, give us the Jewish children. And they denied and denied and denied there's no Jewish children here. Suddenly I saw three children cowering in a corner. I knew they were Jewish. I have no idea what got into me. I turned my head for a few seconds when I looked back, they were gone. I let them get away. I have no idea why. The frustrated son says, Eh! You couldn't do that to ten? You had to only do it with three? And he left the room and the father died. No, of course not father died and the mother asked him what did that mean and he said that my wife and I have no fertility problems went to doctors and everything there's no problem with us having children we were only blessed with three boys now I found out why these three boys my father merited to have these three Jewish grandchildren because he let those three children get away. So I said, if he would have let ten kids get away, I would have had ten. Because he only let three, so I only have three. This is a very, very, very powerful story. Teaching us how the Abishta really runs the world. And as we go on that subject... A former Rosh Hashiva of mine, Rabbi Bukid, Rabbi Chayameh Bukid, was besides just being a Rosh Hashiva, he was also a very learned Rav. And he had a uh, shul here in the in Kanarsi. He's Flatbush, as they would call it. And his son, in Chicago, tells a story that every Friday, his father would take him and run to the hospital and put on film with Yidin. There was one Yidl, I think Mr. Moskowitz his name was, they used to come with him last. Until they were in the order of the rooms they would go to, they came to him last, he was there for a long time. 
supposed to be like a. Uh, either, no, the place must have been either a hospice type of or whatever it was. The people, you know, didn't usually leave there alive. And he'd come to him, and they would always talk to him, and they'd fabric with him a little bit. Very pleasant guy. One day, they come in there, and there's a, another bed, another patient in the room. And they put on film with Mr. Moskowitz. The patient's sitting there, tubes all over the place. And the daughters, two daughters, middle-aged girls, are standing there with him. And the book, it finishes with Mr. Moskowitz, and he turns to him, and he says to the next bed, no, it was laying film. Well, to be honest with you, I don't have in this year, I don't have a, a bleep button. So I can't bleep out all the words that this guy used to tell a book it what to do with this film. And book it didn't blink an eye. He said, okay, okay, I hear you, good job. And the daughters walked outside and they started to practically cry and apologize to Rabbi Bukit that their father was so coarse, but he was a Holocaust survivor and he wasn't even religious before the war. And so after the war he said, forget about it, there's no religion at all. And he hates religion for that reason. And that's why he acts that way. But please, he that Rabbi Bukit said, no reason to apologize. No reason to apologize, I know very well how these people Nebuchadnezzar suffered. Nebuchadnezzar. And every week they would come and they'd go to Mr. Moskos, they'd turn to the other guy and tell him, Good Shabbos, Zaygizund. Fush Leima. should get better. Even as whatever they knew about this guy, no matter how this guy was not going to put on film or wouldn't talk to them even, but they would say, Good Shabbos, Fush Leima. Well, then they get a they come in and the sis daughters come running over to them and they're crying hysterical the father that was in a coma and the matzah v'zeyesh fair. Doctors say it's a matter of hours. So, a book comes into the room puts on film Mr. Moskowitz and he walks over to say vidui with this other fellow the prayer of the person, dying person and suddenly this comatose person lifts up his left hand. The, the daughters see this, they run out, and they call the doctors. The doctors come in and they start choking and poking and poking and checking. They said, sorry, this is just a, uh, a, a, a fluke. It's a fluke. There's nothing, no, nothing changing his condition. There's no reason he should have been able to do this. Rabbi Bukit turned to the daughters, the doctor left, and said, He never let us put on film with him. He hasn't put on since the mitzvah. He picked up his arm already. Do you mind? They said, no. So he wrapped him up. And the guy's lying there in film, he must have not went film since the mitzvah. And all of a sudden, they see this comatose fellow's lips are moving. Lips are moving. So a book it leans over to hear. And he's saying, Shema Yisrael Hashem and the Kena Hashem Echot. Mind boggling. Kitsa, he finished whatever he was davening there. 
They took off their children. They said, the Shabbos was very late. They ran out to home. In the middle of the Shabbos, the phone starts to ring. And it's ringing, and it's ringing, and it's ringing, and there's no answering machines, no caller ID. And Ganesh, the whole Shabbos, the phone keeps ringing. Finally, about the Shabbos, the phone starts to ring. And the book rents the phone, it's the daughters. Not an hour, excuse me, not an hour after he passed away, not an hour after they left, he passed away. We're calling to tell you that tomorrow is the funeral in this, in this chapel, this uh, uni-religious uni chapel. And we'd like, we'd like to invite you to the funeral. The reform rabbi is going to say a few words, and then we're going to take him to the crematorium. Uh, a book, it starts to cry. He says, I got to talk to you. And he comes running down there, and he talks to them face to face, sitting with them, explaining to them, you're not allowed to burn a Jew. The Jew has to be buried, Kavi Yisrael. Back and forth, they already paid for this. Well, the father already paid for it beforehand. And they don't have any money for a regular funeral, for a regular the caver, and for the tombstone, and for all these things. And this way, it's cost effective. No. Nope. Do you know what he says? Do me a favor. Give me his name and his father's name. So he gives the name, of the, they gave him the name of the father's name, and he ran to the Rebbe, and he sent in a letter to the Rebbe, saying that they want to burn this person, they want to do a cremation. The Rebbe answered Rebbe Bukit. Almost immediately he got a phone call. This fellow's direct descendant from Levi Yitzchak Badichev. I will pay for his Leviah, the Rebbe said. The Rebbe said, I will pay for his Leviah and his tombstone. Personally. You must do all that you can to save this person from crema- cremation and he should come to Kev Yisrael. And Kachava, he went back and he asked them, did your father ever say who, if he's descendant from any illustrious people? And they said, yeah, from some rabbi in Berdichev. He always talked about the Berdichev, Berdichev, Berdichev. I think that they said, we think it's Levi Yitzchak. He always talks about Levi Yitzchak, Berdichev, that he's a descendant from him. So then he explained that the rabbi told him this already, and how the rabbi said that the rabbi is paying for the funeral. And in that case, they agreed, and immediately after the eulogy of the reform rabbi, they whisked out the, the body, took care of it, prepared it to his staff design, and it was brought to Kevi Yisrael, the Shkusa Yagan Aleinu, and the Shkusa of Yaakov Ben Shabtai, his Nisham B'Shav and Aliyah tonight, and we should have the ultimate Nevuah of the Kitz of Ramnu Sheikh Nefar, who Beseicham, we should all dance to Yerushalayim and Akedish this very Shabbos. Shabbat Shalom to all.